0: Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Lisa Livingston Martin, attorney, historian, and paranormal investigator, and author of Haunted Joplin, published by the History Press. Stay tuned for a special announcement at the end of our show. No spoilers, but to all you true crime lovers and paranormal junkies out there, I promise it'll be worth your time. Thanks again for listening, and let's tune back in. Lisa, welcome back one last time to Crime Capsule for the last episode of our series on the paranormal.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: In this series, we have had a real spectrum of different stances on the weird and the uncanny and the spooky, and I have a slightly longer question for you here, so bear with me. Uh, But I want to cover just a little bit of ground of where we've been before I ask it. So Darren Edwards, at the very beginning of the series, writing out of Utah, he said he leaned skeptic more than believer, but he still had a few questions about certain things. Okay. That was sort of the position of Gail Socek as well up in Lake Michigan. Primarily holding her tongue on whether the veil was parted, but she had a few things that she couldn't explain either, like sort of strange disappearances and so forth over the Lake Michigan Triangle. Okay. Then Allison Chase, up in New York, in Brooklyn, she said she was pretty committed as a historian and as a skeptic until that one particular experience moved her needle, that sort of ghostly child crawling up her. Her jacket uh, at the Stanley Hotel. Peter Zablocki, who we just interviewed, he's a straight historian, no bones about that. And Brian Clune, who we spoke to last month, he's actually done the same thing that you have. He has founded an investigatory agency and he's pretty open minded towards the weird stuff. All right. So we got kind of the real range. Reconcile for us, Lisa. The two sides of your brain, the paranormal investigator and the strict rationalist, the attorney who relies on fact patterns and narrow definitions of evidence rather than inferences and speculation and wishful thinking and emotive reactions. Do you compartmentalize these two approaches into their separate domains or do you actually hold both the domains of your work to the same set of standards
1: um, interesting question and I, I I hold them together I think I think one of the the hallmarks of uh, of uh, critical thinking is being able to hold to potentially contradictory um, thoughts uh, in your mind at the same time. Um, And often what we find is that it's not really contradictory. Uh, We just haven't figured out how they fit together yet. Um, So on one hand, uh, the open-minded possible believer form of me comes from personal experiences from growing up and and through investigating. Um, And, how i how i usually tell people is look we all know things happen in places that we can't explain uh it's what you do with that for me i then i I try to look at it as rationally and objectively as possible um and i i do use those critical uh thinking skills of what possibilities are there that explain this that are the mundane the everyday uh that are environmental, uh, man-made causes, et cetera, if you exclude those possibilities, then you've got something unusual. Then it's, you know, what, what is the case? And I tend to, to look at those, uh, from a perspective of something is going on. Um, I don't always leap to the conclusion of it's a ghost, um, in, in the sense of a human spirit, I also think there's a lot of research going on, uh, particularly in quantum physics, that um, touches on these issues. That um, there, are, there are a lot. They're finding a lot of um, things that, uh, for instance, every point in time mutually coexists. So you're
0: thinking of entanglement, uh, the theory of entanglement.
1: Yeah, spooky entanglement. Also, um, a parallel. Um, dimensions uh, have been proven theoretically, um, that uh, there are theories evolving that basically two points in time can basically bump into each other. So we may not be experiencing something that happened 100 years ago, per se, but we kind of brush up against that moment in time, as as if you're walking down the sidewalk and brush against someone's shoulder by accident, um, and they may be having a similar experience in that other mm-hmm. point in time. Um, so for me, uh, does that mean quote it's paranormal? Yes, in the sense that it's not a normal experience. Is it a lingering ghost? Not necessarily. I don't rule out that possibility that that can happen, but we just aren't to a point of knowing we don't have enough information at this point. Um, but, uh, to deny that things happen, I think is kind of foolish. I mean, it, you know, you're, uh, it's always easy to say oh, that couldn't have happened. Someone was mistaken. And I'll be the first one, put my attorney hat on saying, yes, um, Witness accounts can be unre- unreliable. Um, and something can happen. The old uh, psychology experiment of you have a hundred people in a room, someone walks in holding a gun and and they uh, uh, have a pre-planned narrative that happens. they walk out, then you ask the hundred people what what happened, and you will get different answers. The question is, how many uh, in that room came the closest to what happened if you repeat it how many people get that kind of experience so if you have a, if you have something that happens in a space that literally hundreds of people have experienced over time that becomes much more interesting
0: and that's something that i have tried to i hope gently Needle some of our guests about is the notion of repeatability, right? That you can visit these places in the American landscape or that have traveled through time in American history to reach us with their different resonances and that it's possible to go to the town of Calico, right, in California, or now a new family lives in the prosperity school, bed and breakfast, and may experience these these things again. And I'm just kind of curious as to what further empirical testing we can pursue on places that claim this kind of uh, duration or longevity or consistency of reportage.
1: Well, I I think there are things that, you know, can be done. It's a matter of when, as, um, institutions, uh, scientific inquiry decides to put resources towards it. Ironically, this was more, uh, this was taken more seriously a hundred years ago than it is now. Um, Intellectuals like Albert Einstein, uh, Nikola Tesla, Thomas Edison took the paranormal very seriously and uh, were all of the opinion that, once science decided to take the study seriously, that inroads would be made for answers. But um, you, you are going to take, it's going to take a large think tank, university, uh, governmental agency to be able to do research on the scope and being able to control variables. Um, because it's going to cost money, and that's what it comes down to. Um, And because even though someplace like the Prosperity Bed and Breakfast, you have things that happen on a regular basis, but if you go there Tuesday, something may happen. Wednesday, that particular thing may not happen, but it may happen again on Friday. So it's repeatable, but you're you're also rolling the dice. If if you are there one time, you may be there on a day it happens, or you may not. Um, and so it's consistency. It's going to take time, resources. And at this point in time, our society has decided this is not something that we think that we're going to devote that kind of study to.
0: I'm going to paraphrase an old philosophy joke about, you know, there is hope but not for us. Um it is repeatable, but not by us, <laughs> right?
1: Um, yeah, at least not on Tuesday. <laughs> right, not on Tuesday, not
0: on Tuesday. Let's take a look at two quick cases before today's biggie. Um, I want to look at the uh, a case which is very, very old in southwestern Missouri, Uh, The spook light, and then I want to take a a look at a case which is very, very recent uh, of the butterfly people. So uh, first, the spook light. Where is this? What is it? And have you seen it?
1: Okay. Uh, The spook light is is a phenomenon that is seen over several square miles um, right along the Missouri-Oklahoma border uh originally it was seen mostly on the missouri side around a little hamlet that actually isn't there anymore but it was called hornet hornet missouri so it originally was known as the hornet spook light um and but even back in the 1800s it would be seen over approximately a 10 square mile area and but that's kind of where the cluster of experiences were. Then it moved a little uh, west um, and slightly north and was seen along what is known as um, County Road 40 um, on the Oklahoma side. And beginning in about the 1920s through about the 1940s, that was where it was predominantly seen. And interestingly enough, uh, there was some effort made to scientifically study it. Um, several universities sent teams in. Uh, the Corps of Engineers uh, was brought in. The Army was brought in, um, trying to ascertain what it was. The Spooklight 1. They, ne- they never came up with an answer yeah i can um, imagine
0: that the corps of engineers i mean here i am thinking out of our new orleans context that they're going to try to build a levee around it <laughs> to capture it yeah, right. they're, yeah,
1: they're, they're majoring the atmosphere they're doing these things trying to figure this out and then um then it moves slightly south about and was seen a lot on what is um, County Road Fifty, which is a mile south of County Road Forty, and that became known as Spooklight Road,
0: which I love because in case you or the Spooklight gets lost, you know exactly where to find it.
1: Well, maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, and and that's the thing is that um, it became uh, it became a a real folklore focal point in the area and a rite of passage, uh, for decades, uh, people took their kids out there and you would park along the 50 road and, and look for the spook light. Teenagers would go down looking for it. Um, on, on any particular, um, weekend evening, you might have a hundred cars down there. Um, and so it, it really was, uh, not only, a phenomena that was going on, but a community experience. This isn't something that you know one person saw ten years ago, or maybe two people. When 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 you talk about people's experiences with a spook light, you literally have tens of thousands of people. Wow! Over time, who wow. had experiences. So again, it's almost it's repeatability. We don't necessarily know the cause, but it's definitely repeatable. And it's viewed in a number of spots, facing all directions. So um, some people will say, oh, it's an optical illusion from this or that. Well, if so, it's an optical illusion in a lot of places with a lot of variables.
0: Now, let's take a look at an event an occurrence an entity I'm not really sure what the noun uh, here is um, which is not repeatable which did only seem to happen once but what's curious about it is that you have these multiple independent witnesses who have no motivation to lie Uh, so tell us about the butterfly people
1: um, the butterfly people, is, is uh, it's, it's very unique because it, it happened, you know, it's one of those, it happened once experiences, but um, in such a way that it can't just be discounted. And this was during the uh, 2011 Joplin tornado, F5 tornado, one of the worst in American history. And it hit Joplin unexpectedly. They did not expect a tornado. They thought it was a rain uh, rain cloud. Um, And uh, it happened at a very bad time as well because there were multiple high school graduations going on that day. It was a Sunday um, early evening. It hit at 5.41 p.m. Um, The largest high school in the area was having graduation and, and a couple of others and it hit the Southwest edge of town and the weather channel, everyone still thought, even on Doppler, they thought it was just rain and that it was turning North one. It didn't turn North and it wasn't just rain and literally hit the largest building in town, a nine story hospital and took out two thirds of it and moved it off its foundation. Then it's proceeded insane. to, yeah. yeah. Then proceeded to stay on ground for thirteen miles through town, uh, destroyed over nine thousand structures. Um, and then you had thousands of people out and about because of all these graduations and so forth that normally wouldn't be out on the roads, um, and the only the only way that i can describe the scene is that the you know Joplin which is a town of 50,000 people literally in the tornado zone looked like photos of bombed cities in world war 2 um to the point that i you know i've lived here all my life and you would and this would went on for well as things were rebuilt that You would be driving along a street you'd driven it thousands of times, and you would lose track of where you were because there literally were no landmarks, and so you had you had to stop and think where you know what street am I at because there were all the street signs were pulled out of the ground, bark was pulled off trees, um, and very you could see across town about seven miles, just empty land. So, that, that's, that's the level of destruction. Um, so, what happened was that there were dozens of reports of the butterfly people in the, in the immediate aftermath, within just the hours uh, after um, the tornado, as people are being rescued and showing up at the other area hospitals. Um, and the, the witnesses were all children, typically younger children, you know, under about 10 years old. And they told remarkably consistent stories to first responders and to uh, personnel in the ERs. They said that the butterfly people came to help them. Um, one description of a little girl was she and her family had taken refuge in a, in a hallway um, and that they could feel, you know, she was feeling the wind, that part of the roof had been torn off, there's debris uh, flying around them. And then she said the butterfly person came and basically stood over them and that basically all of the wind went away. They didn't feel anything flying around anymore. And that basically they held them down, the butterfly person held them down in place so they didn't get sucked out of the house. Um, and very similar accounts. Consistently, they were described as being looking like a person made of light, taller than a regular person uh, with butterfly wings. And I, I always found it interesting, not one described them as an angel. Uh, which this is—we are in the middle of the Bible Belt. I would have expected someone, you know, children to say, you know, an angel came to save us. They didn't. It was the butterfly people, um, and uh, they all described feeling very calm, comforted that everything was going to be okay, and uh, it was so consistent that now that there's that there are butterfly installations everywhere and murals and so forth that if you didn't know the background, you would wonder why, why is Joplin the butterfly city? Um, uh, but that's why is because of those accounts. Um, and it was also very interesting to you because they would be talking about being terrified. And then when the butterfly person, uh, arrived, they were calm. They weren't scared anymore. They knew it was like, going to be OK.
0: I mean, this is weird for a couple of reasons um, and really uh, almost more than any other case in your book, Lisa. This sort of just left me scratching my head thinking what on earth was going on here? And it's weird because children are not great witnesses. I mean, they, they – they fabricate they don't remember you know like they come up with all sorts of things and and in some cases they absolutely have reasons to lie i had an encounter with my six-year-old nephew not too long ago in which he's standing in the middle of the kitchen with chocolate all over his face claiming that someone else in the house ate the cookies and (laughs) you know uh right Two, two plus two buddy two plus two guess what it equals um so you know i uh, but in this particular case, uh, when you have, as you write in your book, multiple independent accounts of the same thing, uh, coming into uh, the sort of the first responder tents and the, the aftermath and so forth from children who didn't know one another, who didn't collaborate on the story, who had no encounter with one another previously, uh, I mean the volume of them plus the consistency of them across an entire urban area that's just weird right
1: it, it really is and 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 another factor is it's not even that you know this could have been a phone call chain of did you hear did you hear phone service is down um, there 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 is there's no electricity uh you you, you couldn't even get text messages through. Um, so there, there literally was no way that um, they could have heard this from another, you know, someone that, someone in the family heard this happen, you know, to someone else. And then they, they repeated it. It, it was, at, this was almost as close to sort of a clinical situation controlling variables as you can in, in something like this.
0: Yeah, it's strange. Um, I'm I'm gonna have to do a little more digging into that on, um, you know, on another occasion. And I've, n- yeah. I've
1: never really found another. I've never really found another example um, like this. Um, now, interesting that there's a second part to it. Um, in the aftermath, um, people um, again, w- without being able to communicate because communications were down people who were not in the Tornado Zone, basically, it was almost like in Stephen King's A Stand, you know, to start gathering, went to grand, what became known as Ground Zero on the main commercial um, road uh, where several of the big box stores had been leveled, Walmart, um, Home Depot, etc. And it became basically Ground Zero Command. And people just appeared and first responders literally were taking people, volunteers and my my 19 year old son at the time was one and basically say okay you three people you're together here's cans uh, spray paint and I need you to go down these blocks search every car every house and if you find a body put this mark if you find a survivor put this mark if it's cleared put this mark etc um, and so how everyone ended up where they did no one can really explain I mean it, it's it's just one of those things that you you can't explain this by you know it, it was the internet it was telephone calls or anything so you had this environment so as people are uh, out starting to, to look for survivors and survivors walking. There were people who were sucked out of their houses and landed a mile from their house, things like sure, that. Phase one lived. is always
0: search and rescue, right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. So while you had people out walking and so forth, they started reporting seeing something else that they would see a group of survivors, you know, walking down a street toward, you know, trying to get where they thought some, you know, there would be help. And they would see cloaked shadow people walking with them. Um, and again, where you would think that people would be scared, would be terrified at these images, consistently their response was they were being guided. They were watching over the survivors they were going with them until they got to help, and so um, it, it, it's almost like the the shadow the cloaked shadow people were the were the ying to the yang of the butterfly people. The butterfly people were helping keep them from being harmed, and the shadow people were looking after them afterwards. And they did not inspire any fear, any revulsion. It was like. They were there to help.
0: Was there ever any, I understand from the murals, I mean, with the butterflies, yes, there were. But um, in the aftermath, I mean, did anyone try to sketch images? Were there any drawings? Were there any kind of like visual captures of any of these entities? Which
1: um, I, I saw a couple um, and then I talked to some of the witnesses uh, and they would just describe them as a as a cloaked figure. You know, hooded cloaked figure, um, something that you would, you know, you imagine from the Middle Ages, uh, all in black, and but they never could see a, a face or anything. It was as if the area of the hood were empty. It's just all and, and just dark, you know, like a shadow person.
0: Very unsettling, very unsettling, and, uh, you know, curious on multiple levels. In the few minutes that we have remaining, Uh, I wanted to take just a quick, quick look at the Joplin Public Library precisely because, as we said last week, some of these places we can still visit to check out the residents and others we can't. But the Joplin Public Library actually is a public library. (laughs) And you can go (laughs) and you can check out a book if you would so (laughs) desire. Um, So would you just give us a very brief overview of why the Joplin Public Library is now... Uh, on your list of places to to check out in haunted Joplin, Missouri.
1: Well, and and, and this is a um, they've they built another library, but the building's still there and still accessible, and um, but uh, and actually used by the by the county and the universities, so it is there and 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 you, you can go through it. Um, it. It's an interesting story because the library. Be the the library that was there. It was built in 1980, and it was never intended, really, to be there or be a library. the The land was part of old downtown. There had been buildings there since the 1870s, and uh, before the before the library was built, that block had about six buildings on it, but the majority of the block was taken up by the Conner Hotel. And it was a nine-story luxury hotel uh, built in 1906, which was actually built on the site of a previous hotel, that had been there since the 1870s, which, ironically, was a three-story hotel that had been moved from Baxter Springs, Kansas, in the 1870s. I can't even imagine that feat. But, um.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. That's uh that's pretty. I'm thinking uh, Fitzcarraldo here, with you know, let's pull the boat over the mountain, right? Let's do it.
1: Uh, Pretty much, pretty much. Um, And so by the early 1900s, they had decided to build a new hotel. There there had been a couple built in town that were newer, and the Joplin Hotel wanted to maintain its status as the the nicest in town. Um, And so uh, they... We're building the new one. It was going to be the Joplin Hotel, but one of the principal owners, Thomas Connor, who was um, one of the early leaders in town, died during its construction um, uh, of cancer, and so they decided to name it after him. Then, and it became the Connor Hotel. And it was it it was a landmark in town for for decades. It was absolutely gorgeous, um, just beautiful appointments the the lobby was all marble and just looked like something out of you know a golden era hollywood movie it was
0: an extraordinary Um, set of photographs in your book i really loved looking at those they weren't recreations i mean they were just captured before it was torn down and you think this is as, as classy and opulent as it gets beautiful
1: it it really was it it really was and then you know of course i had very nice restaurant etc stores and etc and and so it, it it was something that really kind of belonged to everybody everybody had a connection to the connor for being there for this or that and um then uh during the the late 60s and early 70s during urban renewal as as hotels moved out to the interstate there was decline and, and vacancies so they decided um to sell the building and and a new group bought the building and they started um, talking about tearing it down and replacing it with something new and it it was contentious a lot of people did not want it replaced um so they started telling they started saying well it's in such bad shape it would be too expensive to to bring it back up and ironically they hired a group of engineers to um to come in uh, and they were hoping the engineers would say oh it's going to take this this and this it's going to be so many millions of dollars so that they could say see we're justified Um, and i know this because my father was one of the engineers um that's not what they said. Um and the developers were not happy with the engineer's report because they said, no, you know, it, it needs a few things, but it's it's it was not going to be that expensive. Uh so they ignored that and continued their plans. And so they had a planned demolition. And they they had planned on taking it down, just like you see, you know, like when they take out the, the Las Vegas uh, casinos and come down oh, you controlled know, explosions. They're down. amazing
0: to watch. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, that's what was going to happen. And in fact, there was a big event planned, and and people were going to be, you know, you know, block away or whatever, and watch all this. And it was going to be on a Sunday morning that this happened. So they're getting ready, and Saturday night they are still setting some of the explosives in the basement. And part of doing this for controlled demolition is they, you know, you cut partway into the support beams in the building so that they're weakened when the explosives go off. Well, the, the Connor Hotel had other ideas. It's almost as if it decided it was going to go out on its own terms. It came down early, and there were there were three men in the basement working. Um, two of them were killed instantly. Um, the other um, was trapped in a small cavity um, about two feet high two feet wide and about 10, 10 or 12 feet long. And at the other end of the cavity was one of the other fellows who, who was killed instantly. Uh, it was, uh, so confined. He couldn't turn over anything. He just literally was on his back and it took three days for them to find him. And, um, so you had two people pass during the demolition. You had two people die actually during the construction of the hotel. One, One uh, worker uh, fell down the elevator shaft and passed, and another, uh, there was a a crane um, that was set up on the corner uh, uh, of the lot, and uh, it collapsed and killed somebody. So there were four people that passed in the construction and demolition. And then um, you had, um, there were always stories of people, you know, who had, you know, died in the hotel, but in those days, those things didn't really get reported in the paper because it was bad for business. So what we did find out is in the late 60s, uh, a concierge retired and he had worked there for over 50 years. And he was uh, kind of small of stature. And of course, being that age of a building, it was built with transom windows over doors. So if they had a guest check in and then not check out they he he had the dubious distinction of being the one they'd put through the transom window to go find out what happened and he said being interviewed by the paper on his retirement about the hotel and things he'd seen that he knew of 10 suicides in the hotel you know
0: it's funny as i was reading this there were so many um residual entities, shall we say. There's so many sort of stories that were cut short, lives cut short associated with it. I I frankly was not surprised when you guys went in and did your investigation that there would be this kind of uh, sense of recurring presence over time now y'all y'all did a sort of full investigation you brought the flashlights out you did the evps you did all, everything we talked about with prosperity you brought the whole kit and caboodle
1: yeah, a number of times actually yeah yeah, yeah yeah we were there a number of times yeah. and i
0: was struck by uh, I, I want listeners to be able to read your account in full in the book so we're not going to spoil everything as to what you found here but i was struck by one claim that you mentioned uh you have an alleged contact where uh, you say you require a minimum of half an hour of engagement with a presumed entity in in the now library space or in the library space at the time you were there. Uh, it, you say that you know if your flashlights start misbehaving and and you're trying to c- sort of make contact, you say that that y- you sit there for bare minimum half an hour before. You begin to record this as legitimate. You know, you don't allow like one little flicker to kind of say you're know, like, no. If you're asking questions and things are happening to this equipment that you've got, you know, you you might be dealing with something which we can't fully detect or see. So, where did that figure come from? Why why half an hour? Why an hour? That sort of that, that length of time is that is that de- determined by other encounters, or is it just sort of the practice that you've developed over the years?
1: Over oh, kind of over the years, because we've kind of found that in in locations that um, there seems to be a lot of interaction on devices, and, and and certain presences do seem to be fascinated by electronic devices and, and get battery drain and things like that. Um, what we have found too is that when you introduce things like flashlights, sometimes it takes a bit for uh, whatever's there to start interacting consistently with it—it's almost like figuring it out, you know, using something for the first time and like how does this work? And so um, sometimes it will it will start out and it seems kind of random or you know not sure was that responsive to that question or not. So um, we don't get too excited until we start getting internally consistent responses over a period of time and so and we've just kind of find at least half an hour with you know a good number of consistent responses is when we start saying okay This is probably more than just something random, or someone just, you know, something just kind of playing on what. What does this do? You know, type thing, like a little. What is it? Sure,
0: and and I was I was kind of taken by it because you do have alongside these wonderful photographs of the original interior and sort of the um, circular banisters and you know all this sorts of thing. You know, the the marble floors and countertops and staircases. You also have um, this (laughs) photograph of one of your colleagues. Sitting on the floor staring at a bunch of mag lights. And, you know, if you haven't read the book very closely up until that far, you might think, oh, there's not a lot going on here. But if you have paid attention, that you know, then you know that there is something which is, in fact, going on there. And you guys are kind of at work staring at a bunch of mag lights on the floor. And I was kind of struck by the incongruity, you know, of, of, <laughs> of those images. And I couldn't help but ask, kind what, of, what's going on, you know?
1: Uh huh. Well, and 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 hopefully it makes people you know kind of think a little bit too. You know, that's you know uh, think about that process. I always tell people when we do public events because we will do public events and bring people into haunted locations so they kind of get a glimpse of what's it like to investigate. Um, uh, I, I'll tell them you know this this you'll seem weird at first because you're sitting in a room with people and you're ta- you, It's like it's like you're talking to air. Um, but you'll get used to it before long. You will, you will get used
0: to it. There you go. Um, just, you have no idea what you're in for, but you're going to get used to it. It'll be fine. I love it. I love it. Lisa, I have just two last questions for you. And the first one is, is real easy. Um, where can people find out more about your work, whether it's with the tours and the haunted history or whether it's the the books and the publications? Where is the best place for people to find you?
1: Uh, they can find uh, uh, websites are ParanormalScienceLab.com and DarkOzarts.com. You can also find um, Paranormal Science Lab and Dark Ozarts on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram. And books are available Pretty well, pretty well wherever butts are found online, as well as in a lot of the uh, area stores, Uh, but stores and different um, department stores are carrying them. And so, um, just do a search and you can find them. Good deal. Well,
0: thank you. It has been such a joy to have you back on Crime Capsule. You know, we actually owe the inspiration. For this series, to your stories that you shared with us last summer when we were talking about Wicked Route Sixty Six, so we are doubly and triply grateful, Lisa.
1: Well, I'm 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 uh, I'm honored by that, and I've I've enjoyed our times talking uh, over time, and um, happy to do it anytime. Well,
0: I have one last question for you, and I have to ask: How do you do Halloween? In your family, do you just leave everyone behind and go camp out in graveyards with thermal sensors? You know, I mean, it's really hard after reading your books. It's really hard to imagine you doing the trick or treating thing when there are so many other actual ghosts to chase to catch.
1: What do you do? Well, that, that is kind of a family, family joke that, uh, you know, we don't really do the typical Halloween stuff because, um, my, um, my family, my kids, uh, investigate too. So ha- Halloween weekends or in most weekends during October, we're actually doing public ghost hunts and things nice. for people. So, so we're bringing it to other people. And so the joke is, you know, we'll just go buy ourselves a bunch of candy after Halloween and eat it. So.
0: Well, if I can work up the nerve, I will come and join you guys next Halloween for a a ghost hunt in southwestern Missouri and hopefully we won't catch one. Good heavens.
1: <laughs> oh no, no, you want one. You want to catch one. And you're welcome anytime to come.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. Wherever your travels take you, happy hunting.
1: Ah, uh, thank you. And I will definitely be tuning in to more episodes.
0: Sounds good. See you soon. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest has been Lisa Livingston Martin, author of Haunted Joplin, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org. We'll be taking a break next week to get ready for our next series on holiday horror. But join us again in two weeks, as we go from ghost crimes to Christmas crimes, featuring all the festive felonies you can handle. And stay tuned as well for a special announcement involving our first ever Crime Capsule giveaway, featuring your chance to win a free book from Arcadia and the History Press based on this paranormal series. All that and more coming up in the next few weeks. So join us. We'd love to have you and thanks. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Eloia and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a grot and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back
1: after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the Fool series now, wherever you get your podcasts.